Appreciate it. Good morning, everybody. Great to be back. Uh, Jackie and I and the girls were gone for a couple of days. Wow. Now you're not glad I'm back. Sorry. I won't move again, Blair, I promise. Is that all right? Does that help? Okay. <laughs> anyway, we got away for a couple of days uh, to San Clemente. My brother has a place over there, and so naturally we like to go over there when uh, we get a chance. And so it was great to be, it's great to be back. Uh, appreciate Sean uh, covering for me. Uh, this last week, Sean always has a lot to say about how old I am, and I just want you to know that my mission in life is keeping the 70s alive, so there's nothing wrong with that, and um, so his job is to keep the 21st century alive, and, uh, but I really do. He's part of this whole idea of how redemption trains uh, young pastors and young leaders, and so we are glad uh, uh, for that, and we're glad to be a part of that. Sean's been with us more than a year now, and he's got probably a little bit more than a year to go. Um, before we uh, look at um, potentially planting him on the northwest uh, side of Maricopa County. Uh, We are continuing in the book of Romans. And if you have your Bibles, please open to Romans chapter 3. We're in the last paragraph of Romans chapter 3. The book of Romans has been uh, variously exalted by uh, scholars over the last 2,000 years, including now, as uh, some people say it's the most important book in the New Testament, uh, some people uh, call the book of Rom- Romans the fifth gospel. It's, they, they call it the gospel according to Paul. And certainly it is all about the gospel. And we will be in the gospel again today uh, in this paragraph, this last paragraph of Romans chapter 3. Uh, Paul starts the letter in the first six verses when he's supposed to be introducing himself and talking about who he's writing and kind of setting the stage. If you'll recall back 16, 18 weeks ago, uh, he barely gets his name uh, out on, on what he's writing on before he just starts right in with uh, the, the beauty of the gospel uh, in our lives. And so he does that for six verses, and then he finally does some of the formal um, Greek uh, Mediterranean letter writing stuff that they would do in the first century. But then he comes right back in, in, in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and hits us again with the gospel. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the salvation uh, of God. And, 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 and it's for all who uh, believe. And, and within the, the gospel, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. But then he goes into the first, what we would call the first major section of the letter of the book of Romans. And it is a section where he explains to everybody, everybody who has ever lived, how hopeless and lost we are apart from Christ. And that was a challenging 12 or 14 weeks. Some of you said it was like a year, but it was a challenging time to go through that. But we needed to do that. We needed to be able to hear that because it sets us up in verse 21 of chapter 3 for the sweetest words that we could ever hear. And it's the two words, but now. But now, the righteousness of God has been made known to us. And it's in His Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm going to go back and read through verses 21 through 26 because they are very important in setting us up for this last paragraph of Romans chapter 3. I I said a couple of weeks ago that that these verses, 21 through 31 of chapter 3, are so important. You know, Luther calls them the marrow of the New Testament. Uh, he, He calls it the thesis of 
the entire New Testament. These verses are so important that we took three Sundays to unpack them, including what uh, Sean did last week. So I want to go back and read those six verses again to set us up for what happens in 27 through 31, because 27 through 31 are dependent upon verses 21 through 26. So Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, He's saying that we knew this would happen. We knew the Messiah was going to come. This shouldn't have taken anybody by surprise who knows the Hebrew Bible. If you know the law and the prophets, this should not have taken you by surprise that Jesus would come to save His people. Verse 22, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. This is, this is saving us is actually about the glory of God. Everything that happens is really about God. And I know that disappoints some of us who really think that we're all that. But everything that God does is really about God, including saving you and me. This is about to show God's righteousness, to to give Him glory, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. His patience, His kindness. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Those are incredible verses. Uh, As Sean said Last week, those verses represent the the what, the how, and the why of the gospel. Well, today's paragraph, verses 27 through 31, Paul now unpacks the implications of what he presents to us in verses 21 through 26. So everything we're going to talk about today are the implications of that last paragraph. So let me read the last paragraph, verses 27 through 31 again, and then we'll unpack that. Paul writes, Then... If this is all true, and it is, what becomes of our boasting? Well, it is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. There are three implications. And that's what we're going to do today. We're just going to unpack these three implications. And here they are. I'll give you a little preview of what they are. Number one, because of the gospel, you and I do not boast. We have no reason to boast. Rather, in humility, we live in faith. And one of the results of this implication is that we are going to live humbly toward God. Anybody who boasts in himself or herself really struggles to humble themselves under God. Because essentially, we're talking about how great we are as opposed to God. Second of all, the second implication is because of the gospel, there is no partiality. Rather, there is equal access to God for everybody. 
And one of the results of that is that we should be humble towards other people as well. Sometimes we kind of get it into our minds that because God has saved us, we're somehow superior to other people. But we need to remember that Jesus is here for everybody and there's equal access to Jesus for everybody, Jew and Gentile alike. And so we need to be humble towards other people as well. And then the third implication we'll look at is because of the gospel, the law is not abolished, but rather we uphold it in Christ. And there's a nuance there that we're going to have to spend a little bit of time unpacking when we get there. So here you go. Number one, implication number one, there is now no boasting in the gospel. That's verse 27. Grace by its nature should rule out all boasting in our lives. And here's what we mean by boasting. Here's what that Greek word that we translate boasting means. It means to glory in your own achievements. Now there's nothing wrong with achievement, but to then go around and boast and brag about it, when it was Christ and you that did it, that's what the problem is. We like to achieve, and achievement is good, that's all right, but boasting about it is a problem. It's bragging about your accomplishments. Nobody likes a braggart. Nobody. We know that. It's taking pride in your ability rather than in God's gifts in your life. So really what this boasting about is it's the problem of pride, the the king of all sins, the preeminent of all sins. It's the sin that you and I battle with more than any other sin. It's the sin through which all other sin flows. It is out of pride that we lust. It is out of pride that we envy. It is out of pride that we steal. It is out of pride that we gossip. Pride is the most difficult sin for all of us to battle. It's the one that we all battle the most with. Yet it's the sin, it's the very sin that the world holds up as a virtue. That's why so many of us are confused about pride. We're supposed to have pride. Our schools teach us that we're supposed to have pride. Uh, our, our clubs teach us that we're supposed to have Everywhere we go, you're supposed to have pride, 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 pride. No, you're really not. Humility is what you should be going for. If, if grace is unmerited favor, and it is, If the gospel is our salvation through the finished work of Christ and not us, how is it possible that you and I could could boast? How could we boast? We didn't do anything. God did everything. Well, the reason we boast, the reason we have pride is because that's just who we are. Even after... Christ invades our life, takes over our heart, and the Holy Spirit is living in us. We still battle with this on a daily basis. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this paragraph in Mere Christianity. There is one vice of which no man or woman in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, except perhaps Christians, and even then I would say rarely, except perhaps Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or that they are even cowards. But I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. There is no fault which makes a person more unpopular and no fault which, of which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. The vice I am talking about is pride." I will tell you, in 15 years as a pastor, I have only ever had three people, three, confess the sin of pride to me in a pastoral situation. Only three. I I, I can tell you hundreds of other sins over and over and over that people are willing to confess to. The pride thing almost never comes up. 
we never think about pride in ourselves, but we are experts at detecting it in other people. Some of you right now are detecting it in me. <laughs> I gotcha. Well, you're right. Pride is my besetting sin. It is. It's my besetting sin. And the extent to which I am able to yield in pride and arrogance and boasting to Christ is actually the extent to which I am going to experience the joy and the glory of the gospel in my life. That's just the truth. Paul is trying to point that out. Pride's the sin that got Lucifer. Pride's the sin that got Satan. Isaiah talks about this in his his book. In Isaiah chapter 14, he writes these words. He's talking about Lucifer, Satan. He says, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit in the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. That's Satan's story. His pride caused him to act foolishly and grasp at something that he had absolutely no right to grasp for. None. Now there's a contrasting story to that story that I just read you in Isaiah 14. It's the story of Jesus. And Paul records that for us in Philippians chapter 2. Let let me read it for you. Many of you know it. It's it's a familiar passage. I'm going to start in Philippians chapter 2 verse 3. Here's what Paul says. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Don't be a braggart. Don't think more of yourself than you ought to. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. He says the only way you're going to be able to live like this is if you have the perspective that Jesus has. If you have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, which we have access to through the Holy Spirit. So we should be attaining toward the humility of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is saying. And then he gives his sermon illustration. Here he talks about Jesus. He says, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now counteract that with what Isaiah says about Lucifer. Lucifer was saying, I'm going to ascend higher than God. I'm going to, I, I want the throne. And here's Jesus who is God going, I, I'm not going to grasp for that. In humility, I'm going to do something else. What he did was he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You think Satan would do this? And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In humility, Jesus refused to grasp for glory and instead came to earth to die, and he ended up ascending to heaven. In pride, Satan desperately grasped for glory and pined to sit on the throne of heaven, and he descends to Sheol. And, and what the verse I didn't read to you out of Isaiah chapter 14 is this verse. Right at the end of that passage, Isaiah says, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. To hell. That's what happens when we get enamored with pride. 
God appreciates humility, but he has a tendency to humble those of us who are filled with pride. I could tell you stories about how God has humbled me when I thought I was just all that. And God said, eh, I got another thing to show you here. It's kind of miserable. I'd rather just take the humility. Now let me ask what I think is a good question. Why would someone who is saved by grace still fall to this pride thing and still boast? Why does Paul address this here? I, there are many more ways. I'm going to just deal quickly with five ways that we still fall to pride, even though we might be in Christ. Number one, even though we know Jesus and know that the gospel is what saves us, many of us still cling to our own morality as our basis for acceptance by God. We do. We struggle with that. And if we perceive ourselves as morally superior people, pride's going to get us. It just does. The gospel excludes this as a source of boasting because it's what gives us the power to live morally in the first place. I am really glad you're living a moral life. I really am. That's a good thing. Just know, it's not you. It's, it's Jesus in you. Uh, here's another one. Some people more than others, I, I, I know I, I'm around a lot of people like this, some people more than others are people with incredibly tender, compassionate Hearts. I've rarely been accused of that myself. For some reason, God passed me over when he gave out those gifts, okay? He, he was passing out sharp tongues when he came to me, I guess. I don't know. But I know these people that these wonderful, tender, compassionate, caring, empathetic hearts. This person is sensitive and loving. It really understands empathy. And these are all really good things. I'm not saying these are bad things. These are really good things. I wish I had more of this in my own life. But many people, um, many people who have these gifts, scholars call it piety today. Many people with this piety actually believe that because God knows your heart is soft and tender, that that's what he approves of in you. Not Christ in you, but your heart. It's a nuance, I understand, but you listen closely and you can hear that pride and that boasting starting to come through. Well, I do this, and I serve on that, and I take care of this person, and I do that. So we boast in our piety. Our piety. We take pride in our caring and compassionate hearts. But that heart that you have is the result of the gospel and God working through you in faith, not the reason that God accepts you. He accepts you because of Christ. So we are humble toward God, not proud. Here's another one, knowledge. We get prideful about knowledge and correct doctrine. We, you know, so, some of it, we're the Bible answer man or the Bible answer woman and we're really good at apologetics and we like to debate people on theology and so we become boastful about those things. So, some of us with this problem, uh, one writer says it this way, we're spiritually constipated. We have all this stuff up here, but we never behave as Christ did. We got nothing going out. Paul warns Christians in both Romans and 1 Corinthians about the pride and boasting that can result from knowledge. He even says, he says, listen, knowledge is not a bad thing, but if you, if you, uh, if you value it wrongly, it's going to puff you up. But knowledge doesn't save us, and God isn't impressed by it. And in the hands of the wrong people, it can actually destroy communities and relationships. That's a problem. And I would just remind you, Satan has lots of knowledge and he knows good doctrine. 
Knowledge is a really good thing, but not to boast in. We can also boast in our works and our sacrifice. You know, if you look at verse 28 of this passage, Paul specifically says there that we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, as as Christians, as Christ followers, do we do works? Sure we do. Do we bear fruit? Do we sacrifice? I would hope so. We're regenerated, thankful people who are living in loving response to what God has done in our lives through Jesus. But we don't boast about it because it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we do it. We do it in humility. We do it by humble faith. We can also even boast in faith itself. We sometimes run into that problem as well. Sometimes we can even take pride in our faith, even though apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we didn't have anything to do with the faith either. I, 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 I hear that, you know, I was smart enough to finally accept Jesus Christ. I, I finally figured out that, that gos- the gospel is the way. A, a, a lot of people, a lot of believers take pride in their faith and sometimes they do it in a way that kind of puts off non-believers. We've got to be careful about that. It's kind of like saying, I was smart enough to get into Harvard and you weren't. And faith is good. I mean, this whole passage is about faith and that's important. But we need to recognize who gave it to us in the first place and give Him the credit and not us. So, so the first implication is that we don't boast. Because of the Gospel, we don't boast. Rather, in humble faith, we live out our lives. Second implication is that is you find it in verses 29 and 30. The gospel offers true equality. True equality. In Paul's context, he specifically is, is addressing Jews and Gentiles because that's who was at the church at Rome. And those two people groups pretty much uh, represented the two dominant worldviews at the time. But both of those worldviews were deficient. Uh, the Jews claimed one God, which is correct, but only they could experience salvation. Not correct. In fact, the Jews were called by God to be the light of, the, of Him to the, gospel, to, the, to the Gentile world. And they weren't doing the job. That's why they kept getting into trouble with God. So they believed one God, but only, only they could be saved. The Gentiles, on the other hand, uh, believed in many gods. Wrong but they believed that anybody could have access to these gods. So they were correct about that. So both views were deficient in some way. There were other deficiencies in their worldviews too. The Jews' worldview tended to lead to uh, legalism, which is a problem because you can never live up to the law. The Gentiles' worldview, however, led to licentiousness because they said, hey, you know, whatever you do, there's a God to take care of that for you, so do whatever you want. So legalism, licentiousness. Grace, however, the gospel, eradicates every one of these deficiencies. Grace is the one true equal way. Grace eliminates the need for a legalistic, works-based attempt at justification, and it provides the power for us to overcome sin. If you're in Christ, you actually have the power to be able to overcome sin in your life now. Now, there's some contemporary thought, and there's a lot of contemporary thought in worldviews and schools and philosophies and arguments that we... What about some of those and how do they stack up? 
against the gospel. Well, the gospel can address any of them too. I've got like three maybe that I'll give you an example. There's probably a hundred, but I'll give you three pretty basic ones, I admit. But just to give you an idea, here's one. Uh, It's the idea that all paths lead to God and all religions, faiths, and belief systems are essentially the same. You, You all have heard that one, right? Okay. Uh, a lot of people will use that to, in order to just avoid hard questions in their life. They don't really want to think about what's wrong in their life or where they're deficient or where, as Paul says, they're falling short. And so they like to say, well, it doesn't matter. All paths lead to God. I'm going to get there some way. I'm just going to take a different path. Here's the problem with that. First of all, every faith Every religion and every belief system at some point makes an exclusive truth claim that eliminates every other one. So so this idea doesn't even work upon, upon just marginal scrutiny. It doesn't even work. Even the claim that all of them are the same is an exclusive truth claim because it excludes those that make other truth claims. So you can't get past this. You just think for 30 seconds about this, you realize that doesn't work. And the reality is that this one path, same religion view is is generally used to accomplish two things. Number one, you never have to suffer the discomfort of asking someone else, maybe someone you like or someone you love, to explore the possibility that what they believe is not correct. You never have to do that. You can just sort of console yourself and say, ah, they all lead to God, it's okay. And second of all, you never have to confront sin in your own life or in somebody else's. The gospel trumps this view by saying everyone is in the same boat, we're all sinners, and everyone has the same redemption, Jesus. Uh, Here's another one. Uh, It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere about it. I I call this the the Oprah Dear Abby approach because they have both said that many times. Some of you are like, Who's Dear Abby? Uh, Google it and you'll figure it out. Okay. Again, though, this is a superficial notion in that you never have to go deep enough to discover if what you believe might be wrong. Because all you have to do is claim sincerity. Well, I'm really sincere about it. That's, that's a way to shut down debate. That's a way to shut down conversation. Well, I'm really sincere. I'm really, really sincere. So, let me tell you, sincerity is not the magic potion that trumps reality. You ever thought that you could be sincerely wrong? When I was at ASU working on my master's in communication, I worked with a brilliant student in my cohort. We were, we were both working on our master's, and, and she was brilliant. We were proofreading partners, and she was really, really smart, on her way to big, big things. But I would also suggest that she was a little bit misguided. Uh, her big thing was, and, and we were both working on degrees in rhetorical analysis, so analyzing arguments and texts, things like that. Her big thing was this. She used to say this all the time. I don't care what position you take, just as long as you can create a sincere argument for it. No matter what. No matter what position. So in her view, the ability to create an argument trumps truth and reality. See, we all have our idols. We all have our idols. Just because a person is smart, it doesn't mean they've outsmarted the gospel. And it's not that I don't think that academic exercises are valuable. I think they are, but they cannot save us and they don't trump God. God is bigger than academia. That may be a shock to some of you, I know that, but He is. 
The gospel is not an academic exercise. It is the miraculous intervention of God in your life. Here's, here's, here's the last one I'll mention. It, this, this one kind of goes the other way. It's the claim that all religions and truth claims are equally false. All religions and truth claims are equally false. Now, to me, that sounds suspiciously like a truth claim. So it must be false. So <laughs> now what do we do? Now, here you go. I will tell you that I empathize with this one quite a bit, though, because many who hold this position hold it because they assert that there's something wrong in this world. That This is why they hold this. And, 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 and here you go. We all know there's something wrong in this world, right? There's something desperately wrong, right? Anybody in here on Twitter? You realize that yesterday, Geraldo Rivera tweeted a picture of himself bare-chested, okay? There's something wrong in this world, all right? I'm telling you, right? There's evidence right there. By the way, I am afraid to open any picture link on Twitter now as a result of that. We all know there's something wrong in this world, and, and the reason the person makes this claim, that, that, that makes this claim makes this claim is because uh, they believe that it's the cause of religion and truth claims that people go to war and kill each other. Every war has been caused by religion. So the person who claims that all religions and truth claims are equally false, it's just their way of dealing with the obvious. There's something wrong in our world. And they're asserting that their explanation is actually the correct one. Well, what's wrong is religion and truth claims. So we're back to the same issue. We're all just trying to figure out what's wrong. I get that. I understand that. But I'll also tell you the gospel plainly explains what's wrong. Though we don't like it, the gospel says what's wrong is us. We're what's wrong. And then plainly redeems what's wrong for all of us through Jesus. Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's truth. And then Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. That's grace. Proverbs, this always makes me think of Proverbs 14. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Ravi Zacharias recently wrote that this generation listens with their eyes and thinks with their feelings. We listen with our eyes and we think with our feelings, which is why we are so easily deceived. The Gospel says in humility, trust in God through Jesus Christ. The Gospel turns the world upside down, but it turns you and I as followers of Jesus right side up. There is no partiality. Anybody can come to Jesus. And He's here. So, the implications. There's no more boasting. We live in humble faith and we're humble toward God. Second of all, there's no partiality. There's equal access and, and so we're hum humble toward others. Here's the last implication. The gospel does not abolish the law, but rather the law is upheld because of the gospel. Now, obviously, this implication stems from the last verse of chapter 3, verse 31, where Paul says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? No, we uphold the law. So, if you've been sort of drifting off, because I know it's warm and humid, I need you to come back with me now because this is going to be a little bit of an exercise here these last eight or ten minutes. So wake up, 
Shake your head if you have to. Take your glasses off before you do it, okay? But hang with me, because here's what we need to do. We need to kind of clear something up, and then we're going to lean into something about this verse. Many, many people believe that this verse has to do with sanctification. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Sanctification is a big theological word that means that once, you, uh, once God saves you through Jesus Christ and you become a follower of His, you are going to start on this journey where your life is going to start to look more and more like His and you're going to root sin out in your life and you're going you're to become more and more holy. You're going to be able to battle sin with effectiveness and efficiency when you had no opportunity to do that before. That's sanctification. And that is a good thing. And the thinking about this verse goes like this. And, this and, and again, this is all true. I'm not saying that any of this is necessarily wrong. It just might be misapplied to this verse. But here's the thinking. We've been talking for the last two weeks about how we are justified in Christ. A righteousness of God apart from the law has come. And that is Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. He exonerates us from our crimes. He atones for our sins. He suffers wrath on our behalf. He he substitutes His life for ours. And then we experience the resurrection that He gave us into newness of life. We are a a new creation. We are rescued from our hell-bound destination that was apart from Jesus Christ. We are redeemed. But genuine redemption does not exist apart from or can come without being accompanied by regeneration. If we are redeemed, we are also regenerated. We are new creations living a new life in Christ. Regenerated means that we can now live by the power of the Holy Spirit, the life that Jesus calls us to. We go on this magnificent journey of becoming more and more like Jesus. We're transformed. And we experience ongoing transformation in our life. The great John Stott, wrote this, the justifying work of the Son and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit cannot be separated. It is for this reason that good works of love follow justification and new birth as their necessary evidence. And that's all true and that is all very, very good. And many people believe that that is what Paul is talking about in verse 31. That rather than abolishing the law, we uphold the law by living as regenerated people. By living in this uh, process of sanctification. Not quite. It's good. And a lot of people believe that, but, but, but... but a lot of scholars say that it doesn't go far enough. It's not quite right. And I would lean into what they say. Here you go. Actually, the death of Jesus on the cross is what, is what establishes the law in us. And it does it in three ways. And some of you might be going, wait a minute. The death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, that established the law? Wasn't the law already established? Didn't the Jews have the law for thousands and thousands of years? Yes, but the law had never been established by anyone living it. Do you understand that? They had the law. It was written down. They understood it. They studied it. They wrote commentaries about it for thousands and thousands of years. But nobody had ever established the law by actually living it. And nobody had ever established the law by paying the penalty for not living up to it. And Jesus does both. Here's what happened. And it's pretty cool when you think about it. And this is what I believe Paul is getting at. First of all, Jesus kept the law. 
You and I could not, cannot, can never keep the law. All of us have already failed to keep the law right now. And we're going to fail later today. Some of you right now are failing it. We can't keep the law. But he did. And he's the first one and the only one to ever do that. And that's what justifies us. That's what justifies us. His keeping the law. He established the beauty and the perfection of the law by being the only one who ever kept it. So we still have the law to look at to say that's what Jesus was able to do for us. Think of it this way. Think of it this way. God decides that his perfect law is way too strict. And so he's going to do what a lot of people think that he's going to do. A lot of people have this theology. Yeah, I know there's the law of God, but you know what he's going to do? He's, he's really got like this passing grade or, or this sort of, it's like the PGA tour. There's like, you can make the cut, you know? That's what a lot of people, that's how I'm going to get into heaven. I'm going to, I'm going to have the passing grade. I'm not perfect, but I'm certainly not unrighteous. That's what a lot of people think. I know I'm not perfect, but I am certainly not unrighteous. I'm good enough to get into heaven. So you might think, well, I, okay, so God says, well, if you keep 70% of the law, you're in. Or 50% of the law. Or 90% of the law. Whatever it is, pick a number. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is. The problem with that is that God has just nullified 30%, 50%, or 10% of the law. And a part of the law nullified is the same thing as the entire law being nullified. It doesn't work. Even if it's one-tenth of 1%. I kept 99.9% of the law. I should get in. Nope. You broke the entire law with that one-tenth of one percent. Our sin in every case, in every case, nullifies the law. Jesus' holiness establishes the law, and we receive that from Jesus. That's what we receive from Jesus. He was the perfect sacrifice on the cross. We uphold the law because we receive that from Jesus. We didn't do anything. Nothing. Now, now, don't get down on yourself. I didn't do anything. That's good news. He did it all for us. Second, the law also says that the payment or the wage for breaking the law for sin is what? Death. That's our payment. We sin one time. We break the law one time. Our wage, our payment, what we deserve is death. If the law is broken, death must rightfully occur for there to be justice. The law calls for the death of the lawbreaker. Well, if Jesus had not died in our place as the perfect sacrifice, and if God decides to let us live with Jesus not dying, not only is God's holiness nullified, but again, so is the law. God nullifies the law if there isn't a death to pay for the sin. So Jesus establishes, he upholds the law by his death and we receive that as well from Jesus. We receive the perfect life from Jesus. We receive the death from Jesus. So you can see by the definition and requirements of the law itself, both of these have to take place for the law to be upheld. Well, that's done in Jesus. His perfect life, his 100% law-abiding life, and His death as the wage for sin. Our sin, but sin nevertheless. 
He dies for us. And that takes us to the third thing. We uphold the law not because of our life of sanctification, not because of our life of growing awareness of of godliness and holiness. Rather, we uphold the law because just as Adam's sin was imputed to us, Jesus' law-fulfilling life and death are imputed to us. We uphold the law not because of anything we do, but because of Christ in us. His life is in us. That is awesome. And that is the true essence of the gospel. And that's what, that's what Paul is getting at in verse 31. And that's why we can live without boasting. That's why we can look around and see that everybody has access to God through Jesus Christ. And we should tell people about the gospel. And that's why we can know that when God looks at us, He sees Jesus' life and death. And He looks it up and He says, I see someone upholding the law because Christ is in them. Let me pray. Sean's going to come and lead us in our time of response. God, we thank You. We thank You that in spite of all the bad news that You have for us, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, You have given us life through Your Son. We are able to uphold the law because of Him. God, thank You that we have this life. God, we praise You for it. And now we're going to worship You as a result of that. In Jesus' name, Amen.